You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. Welcome to the show. My name is Jay Mack, also known as Jeremy, live in my COVID-free bunker in St. Louis, Missouri. And this is Sam Wade out in Los Angeles, California, saying, how's everybody doing? Hope you're staying safe. We've got an incredible show. Can't wait to get to it. If you would like to look us up on the web, it's 2tapedex.com. Links up to our SoundCloud page. Also, we have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash 2tapedex. Make it simple. We'd love to get feedback, questions, comments, anything. We answer any and all questions we get. Sam, how's your week been going? Uh, I've had a, a pretty uh, interesting week myself. Um, you know, I, we'll probably talk about it a little bit on the show tonight. Well, we'll definitely talk about it tonight. Uh, a little bit out of the ordinary, got to do some some cool things and uh, and uh, bring some attention to some really important issues uh, facing uh, a lot of people here in this country. So I'm uh, excited to talk about that. I know I'm being vague about it, but I don't want to give it away right away. Um, but other than that, it's been good, man. Yeah, just uh just doing the thing and uh, and just trying to uh, stay in the moment as much as possible. You know what I mean? I know the news that you have, and it is pretty cool. I will tease that. We will get into that in a little bit. I just recently went randonauting, actually, about an hour ago. Remember our episode? Oh, did you? Yeah. Uh, for our listeners who don't know, go back to listen. I think it's episode four, Randonauts, Randonauting. It's where you, <laughs> you, get a, you get a cell phone app, and it basically takes you to a random spot within the like a certain area my like i think we had two mile radius it took me to a dead end in a in a neighborhood okay. in a neighborhood who was what that was being built and there was somebody had stolen somebody's fountain and dumped it in the field oh, wow. so no that's that's definitely weird i could definitely uh yeah. get behind finding a random fountain my little boy who's eight was all about daddy look at that look at that he was freaking out because the first time we went rando nodding he was not impressed yeah, well, you know, sometimes it takes a minute, and uh, so I'm. It's I think it's pretty cool that you came across something odd. You know, I think we should uh, every once in a while check back in on this and uh, and and see what what might pop up during a rando knot session. I think pretty cool. I think the one I picked was a was a, was a, a void. Maybe is that it? Was that one of the options? Um, yeah, I need to go and like learn a little bit more about about what those things are hey, if there's any listeners out here that have tried uh rando nodding since we talked about it before we'd love to hear your stories so post them on the facebook page send us an email um who knows maybe we'll we'll do a show about some of the weird things that people have heard sometimes so absolutely well we Sounds have good. well we have a very special guest this evening he's an accomplished musician and composer who has worked on many really cool projects i looked him up online really cool guy let me welcome to the show Mr. Keith Levinson, and Sam, I'll let you take it from here because you know him much better than I do because I just met him five minutes ago. <laughs> well, Keith, uh, hey, how's it going, Keith? Pretty good. Right on. Well, you know, we wanted to, you know, first right off the bat, um, talk about this this thing, Fuster Cluck, that you have been, uh, you know, devoting a good portion of your life to for the last few months. Um, and that, uh, tell me, where did the name Fuster Clock actually come from? The name came from uh, a Rolling Stone interview that I did where 
the the reporter guy named Elias White said, "Can you describe to us the unemployment situation in New York?" Sure. And like getting through the, the Department of Labor, and I said, "It is a total clusterfuck." <laughs> that's the that's the the c word right and yeah. i didn't think he was really gonna publish that but then that turned out to be the headline of the article and when i saw that i thought oh well i can't really use cluster fuck <laughs> as the name of the company but i thought i could flip it around to foster cluck um which would be much more acceptable so that's that's where Fuster Cluck came from. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and what kind of what can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what Fuster Cluck has been doing for the last few months? Like what have you what have you been spearheading with this? Well, we're trying to advocate for um any of the 12 million people in the live entertainment industry who have lost their jobs through this pandemic and have essentially lost uh, all income since March 15th, let's say. Um, and we were the first to get canceled and will be the last to go back. So right. it's kind of a, uh, it started as like sort of a funny idea with a funny name. And now it's gone into an advocacy organization. That's really that's really something because I don't think most people think about what goes on behind the scenes. I played in a band for a while, and we had one or two guys that would help set help us set up set up the drum kit, bring the amps in. But multiply that times thousands of performing artists. Performing artists that's really overwhelming the number of people who are not able to make a dollar right now it kind of reminds me of that um that jackson brown song what's it called the load in or the loadout <laughs> the loadout the loadout yeah and it's at the end of uh um uh, running on empty i believe i got that on vinyl yeah. upstairs and, and then yeah it's it's there's a lot of people that are out of work and i guess the stars are able to cushion themselves with their money pillows some of them anyway but the but the the average Joe that's setting up the amps and running the lights and running the soundboard and those people are kind of screwed. Yeah, it's it's um, you don't worry about the rich people. You worry about the coach drivers and the caterers and the uh, people who sell you popcorn and the people who park your car and the lighting guys and the sound guys and the riggers and. Uh, all those people that it takes to make a show happen. Yeah, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that I don't think people are aware of. No, and you see that, I would say, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that, you know, for what you do every day when you're on the road, you see a lot of the effects of behind the scenes as you're doing what you do. We didn't even actually mention that. Um, for our listeners, Keith is actually the, the musical director and the conductor for uh, The Who. Right. So these crews and these guys that are doing what they do, there's no way that that show would ever be able to go on the road. No. No, we're totally dependent on, on all our crew. 
and then and then all the people from our crew who are dependent on local crew um you know who don't necessarily travel with us um but they're part of the local event so you guys want to talk a little bit about the Ryman show I was able to watch Sam's clip that he sent me privately well that was the only thing worth saying really wow <laughs> Sam how's that make you feel <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know about that, but uh, I think that it was a it was a really um, incredible event to be a part of. Um, Keith and, and I, uh, you know, we we actually had the honor of uh, writing a song for this event, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Keith or Keith talk a little bit about um, how uh, what you've done with Fuster Cluck uh, throughout the year and how that kind of transitioned to to doing what we just did together uh, earlier this week at the, at the level up festival, the Ryman uh, auditorium, how that even came together, because not only were you advocating through foster Cluck, you were also supervisor for the show. And uh, there was a lot of things happening behind the scenes to bring, to, to really shine the spotlight on this cause that is affecting over 12 million people in the country right now. Well, when I, <clears throat> When I met the Level Up people, um, which was also on a podcast, actually, uh, a video podcast, um, but I met I met Eileen Valdois, I think her last name is, who is who was the one of the eight founders and spearheaded this whole festival. Um, we were on separate podcasts episodes and then the host of it said you know you guys are too you should really meet each other so we did and um trying to figure out how fuster fuster clock could help the festival and how the festival could help us mm -hmm. and um the actually truly the only spe specific thing that i could think of was oh well we could write or one could write a song to to close it and then the the lyric of what became 12 million came to me pretty quickly yeah i mean the song really happened quickly uh i think we we had you know between the lyrics and the music we just kind of almost dropped out of the sky it felt like it was it was a little bit magical like it was meant to be for this moment wouldn't you agree yeah i yeah. love it when that kind of magic happens with songwriting it doesn't always happen that way rarely <laughs> and, and i've sort of lived in my sort of cocoon of not writing mm -hmm. uh so there was something magical about writing again and writing this sort of anthem um, to all of us who are in the live entertainment industry and out of work. Right. Speak speak to performing at the Ryman. I was lucky enough to see Oasis when Zach Starkey was was drumming for them, and I know he he's the drummer for the Who, at least the touring drummer for the Who. The acoustics yep. in that place are unbelievable. I love that. And Oasis is a pretty massive sounding 
uh, band, but the acoustics really showed up. I can imagine even better with like an acoustic performance like you guys did. Can can you talk about how how it was to play the Ryman Sam and then Keith as well? Keith, you want to you want to take that first? I mean, I had rehearsed there before. I had never performed there. Um, it felt like it was a great sounding hall. Mm-hmm. When you're doing something for television, it's or or streaming, it's a little hard to tell sort of how you really sound. Right. Um, but I certainly thought we sounded good while we were doing it. Well, and that's important too, because like if you're in a place where the acoustics are dead or, or something feels off, it's, it's really hard to connect with the music and, and, uh, and, and play, play it live, like try to translate that. I mean, for me, walking into the, the Ryman, which was, you know, the first time for me, as you, as you know, um, I don't know, it kind of was, it almost felt like hanging out with an old friend in a way. And I don't really know how to describe it better than that. Like I felt like I could just relax and do what I was there to do and to, you know, perform this song that we wrote for, for all these people, you know, it made it very easy to do. No, it came across very relaxed in the feed that I saw. I mean, obviously with a crowd there would be much more exciting and you could actually maybe gauge how it sounded but yeah, Keith, you were playing piano on that, right? You were on to the left of the stage. Am I right about that? Was that you on the piano? Yeah, house left, stage right. Yes. And same was in the middle. The background singers were incredible. Everything was just really well done. I mean, not like I'm an expert, but I have played enough live shows with bad sound systems and bad backup you know, performances to really appreciate what you guys did. And I think that it's it's a really important thing that what you're doing here, because like our roadie, if you want to call him that, was my best friend, and he hauled the stuff in and out. We we absolutely could have done it without him, but it would have been so much more stressful. And I know that our performances had much more energy in him when he was doing the heavy lifting. And Fuster Cluck, I love, I absolutely love the name, but what a great organization. I'm happy to be able to, uh, and with our little venue or our little podcast here, to be able to shine a light on so people that are really underappreciated. I mean, everybody knows the guy on the on the stage in the spotlights. They don't know how many people it takes to get that guy up there to look like a rock star. Lots. So you're kind of like you're you're setting up kind of a god on a pedestal, but without the lights and without the sound and without the ten thousand watts of electricity, it's just a guy standing on stage. I'm so jealous of Sam getting to play on that stage. It it just seemed like such a great place to play. It was it seemed really fun. And I and I I gotta say you guys were very seemed very relaxed and it was it was enjoyable to watch and I wish I could have been there to see it. I didn't feel like I had any nerves, Sam. I don't know about you, but you know it's it, it's sort of a temple of music, right? Or to, to church oh, music, um, very special to walk into. But I wasn't nervous. I wasn't nervous either. Like I said, it was. Um, I mean, you know, we had. An amazing house band just some really really in, incredible musicians that have played with everybody and everybody was just doing what they do serving the song all the songs you know translated really well and, and especially the moment on on 12 million I, I just feel like everybody 
was able to just kind of get lost in the song and let it become alive and become whatever it was going to be right there. You know, I'm, I'm really proud that it turned out that way. So Keith, you've done work on Broadway, right? I'm afraid so. Yeah. Sam, do you got a list of some of the things that you pulled up that he had, that he's been involved in? Well, Keith, you're going to have to tell me, you know, if there's any other than what we have here, but like, so so I have have a list of some here. You have like, you worked on Annie. I know you did that one for a long time. Uh, The best little whorehouse in Texas, Greece, Jesus Christ, superstar, Tommy. Tommy. Uh, Bridges, Madison County. Jerry Robbins, there's a whole bunch of them. How did you even get into this place? Like, what's what's been your musical journey? Like, what turned you on? What made you know that you wanted to to be in music? And how did you get you know to to what you're doing now? Like, what was the spark? Was there like was there was there something that you knew like this is what you wanted to do? Well, my mother forced me into years excuse me, piano lessons, which I didn't really enjoy. But then somewhere in middle school or early high school, I sort of became became enamored with the theater. And then I played a cocktail party in, I guess, 1975. And Paul Schaefer happened to be at that cocktail party. Oh, how cool. And he was like, oh, I could really use a sub on Wednesdays and Saturday afternoons to do, he was playing a show called The Magic Show with Doug Henning, who may be dead, actually. Um, Hmm. But it it was um, a show by Stephen Schwartz and whatever. It wasn't a very good show, but it ran forever. Sure. Um, And so I had to get papal dispensation to get out of my Wednesday and Saturday, uh, Friday classes in high school, which they were not willing to give me. So I had to switch high schools. And so I, I, I started playing Wednesdays and Saturdays at the, Ma- at the Magic Show. I mean, I don't know if that was a spark, but it was a Broadway job and I was 15 years old. Wow, uh, that's amazing. So... I liked the money. <laughs> so Keith. So wait, you got your your you you got your first theater gig when you were fifteen through Paul Schaefer. Yeah. Here's, That's pretty cool. <laughs> here's my association with Paul Schaefer. I was in New York to see the Letterman show and I walked by him on the street in front of Rupert Stelly. <laughs> it was like I looked at my wife, I was like, is that Paul Schaefer? I mean, New York is such a strange place where you walk by famous people and not even know it because there's just so many people are you from new york keith i am from new york and actually this is much later than this is now 20 years after the magic show and the last time i had seen paul we actually lived in the same berg wow uh, in not upstate new york but but northern New York, in Bedford, New York, and I would occasionally see him at the the local pizza joint. But that was, I mean, that was years after I met him. So describe how you went from Broadway to working for the Who. That's that's kind of a big jump there. I'm sure there was like a time lapse in between there. Yeah, there was. I mean, I had done some work for Roger Daltrey as a conductor 
in the 90s. And then that sort of led me to, I think in in the 90s, there was sort of a, um, a push to rock stars with symphonies, especially internationally, not so much here, because here budgets have been pretty constrained, but in Australia and England and Europe, um, they were spending money on putting together these shows. So I did um, a, a couple of months in Australia with Meatloaf, a little work with the, with Yes in South America, Kiss in Australia. Um, and I was conducting this thing called the British Rock Symphony, which was somebody else's concept. But basically, we would just trade stars dinosaurs of rock <laughs> in and out you know so we would have eric burden from sure. the animals yeah darling love and Thelma houston and paul rogers there bad. were a lot of people who came through the british rock symphony paul rogers bad company right bad company free yes yeah i saw them at riverport not too far from the house to- few years ago and that that guy can still sing his voice sounds oh, yeah, a, it's yeah. it's ageless ageless and i mean that a lot of time a lot of times that's the trick for singers i mean me as a singer i mean i'm more of a singer than a guitar player to to have to match up to your 30 year old or 25 year old self is almost impossible for most singers but but paul rogers i couldn't i couldn't even hear any age in his voice it was amazing yeah he's great it's still great one of the only people that could ever, like, you know, take on some of Freddie's songs, right? Yeah. In Queen. Um, wasn't uh, wasn't Gary Brooker part of that, too? From, uh, he was. Paul Harum? He was. Well, I do remember speaking to the, the concert, or the, the uh, classical mix with rock music. I remember in the 90s, I believe Metallica, even Metallica got on board with that, and they did an album with some symphony. So you you are actually a conductor too. I've seen pictures of you conducting symphonies. That seems like a really daunting job. It's not the easiest job, but yeah, actually Metallica was with the San Francisco Symphony. Yes, and and they just did a follow up album last year, I guess. So how do you marry classical music or classical arranging with rock music? That seems like it would be really tricky. I mean, as a sitar player, I know how tricky it can be to mit- to match sitar Indian music with rock music. Now, I know Western and Eastern music are very different, so it's kind of apples and oranges. But it seems like it could be tricky. As somebody who does not understand classical music that much, it seems like it could be tricky to take the who and put classical string arrangements on it. Well, the first thing you have to do is forget about the word classical. Because <laughs> um, it's not really classical. Uh, anytime I get one of these these gigs, I always try to think about it as being one big rock band. I, I don't try to sweeten it with strings or turn it into a Montevanti, Montevanti session. <laughs> I try to keep it like a big rock band. Yeah. Has there ever been a gig that you felt like I I can't do what I it's hard for me to do? Like how do you do that with KISS? When you said KISS, I'm like, I don't even know how you put string arrangements in KISS music. But you're you're the expert. So 
I'm sure it wasn't nearly as difficult for you as it sounds for me, but how do you do that? Just to, just like a, like a fly on the wall. Actually, they they, they weren't hard. Um, in a way, in some ways, Meatloaf was harder because his songs are so, well, Jim Steinman's songs really are so romantic and sort of stringy to begin with that it's hard to find a new a new way to approach that a new voice you know i think i did okay but there i think many people could have done well on that job well i <laughs> it's easy for you to say but you are the expert i can't imagine like okay when we did when me and sam did our ep tomorrow never knows he made me sound amazing and he would put these arrangements of strings and like Alone on the Moon, that song that we did. I wrote that song when I was like 15 years old. He took it to a place I never thought it would go. And and he's like, oh, you you were so, I couldn't have done it without you. But I'm like, right back at you, bro. I could not have done it without Sam's arrangement of the stuff. And I think he undersells how how smart he actually is on some of this stuff. Because I've yes, known- he enjoys that. <laughs> I've, no- <laughs> I've known him for years and he... <clears throat> I think he knows he's smart, but he's not confident in how smart right here, he is. Right? Actually, I think he plays that. I think what he does is, oh, I, I, <laughs> I will tell you I am not so smart, so I can totally conquer you with my smartness. Pulling a Columbo. Exactly. Oh, oh, just one more question. Exactly. Well, I always thought, you know, I always thought, so we're, so we're talking about that song, Alone on the Moon. I always kind of heard that there was like something there, right? You know, for, for me, when I'm approaching in my like, um, I don't know, like in my like grassroots approach to like orchestration, I'm always thinking of like cashmere. Like I want to make it sound like just as huge with the string section, like the way like, you know, John Paul Jones was doing that, you know, or like. Yeah, well, you have, haven't you? (laughs) That's awesome. Well, he got the best out of my sitar playing because at the end, and that hasn't been featured on this podcast yet, but tnksongs.com, go there, listeners, and you can get all of Tomorrow Never Knows music, all four tracks. He he said, I want the sitar on the end, and he's like, I want it to be massive. And I'm like, well, you got to understand and you would understand, sitars are not electric instruments. They're acoustic instruments, and they're not massive-sounding se- by nature. So I literally had to no. track four different tracks to get the massive sound. And I, t- I told him, I was like, what do you want? He goes, dun, 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 dun. And that's all I needed. But it took me four different tracks to, to get the, the sound enough to, to match the electric, like the electric guitars. But I'm so glad he did push me because... I'm sure he's told you I've got Parkinson's and, and things are not always easy for me. Let's be honest. They're, they're, oh, yeah. they're very common. Oh, really? Well, they're, well then you understand they're very rarely easy. And when I got yeah. done, when I, my fingers were almost bleeding and I'm like, legs are cramped up and I listened back. I'm like, I think I got it. <sighs> and I sent it to Sam and he, he, he put it in the mix and it sounded amazing. He made me sound like Ravi Shankar or some crap. It was amazing. I loved it. You don't look like you have Parkinson's. I do. I've been sick a long time. Um, I was one of the lucky ones to get sick when I was thirty in my in my early thirties. But yeah, we don't have to talk about it. Um, no, it's cool. 
I mean, no one does know, so. You had mentioned that it was difficult uh, for you playing sitar, but, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting when we were making the Tomorrow Never Knows record is that you said there was something about the way that uh, the way that you had to sit physically to play sitar, which is a very specific position too, opened up something to where it was actually easier to play that. Um, but I'm I'm kind of curious, like for Keith, because because now like when we when we played together on stage you know, earlier this week, you're, you're playing the piano. Has that like started to affect the way you play? Um, like, what's it like, you know, from from a daily life thing? With stuff that I know. It hasn't really had an effect at all. Learning new stuff has been very difficult. I could, I could get on board with that because there's muscle memory. Like I spent so many hours sitting in front of my teacher, Imrat Khan, rehearsing these ragas and these exercises. And I feel like a lot of it is muscle memory. But if I've got to learn something new, it really takes me a long time to pick it out, to get the muscle memory down. And that's why I would tell Sam, give me a week. Tell me what you want. And let me get it in my brain. I miss the miss sitting down and just being able to just go with it and pick things out easy. But in in a, in a certain way, having to work harder makes it that much sweeter when I nail it. Can you relate to that, Keith? I, I mean, a little. I, I I don't think of myself so much as a, a piano player anymore. Um, but I certainly know as as an arranger orchestrator who works with a, a keyboard and a mouse that's become much more difficult yes yes much more uh, tedious what's well, the fine motor skills that are that tend to be most severely affected like for me when i'm not on my pills it's much easier to walk i can walk pretty long way but just don't ask me to tie my shoes Till right. I take till, till I take my pill. Then when I take my pills, then I'll tie my shoes, but then I won't be able to walk. It's it, every and everybody everybody's experience with Parkinson's is so different. People think they say Michael J. Fox. Everybody's not like that. Everybody has such an individual journey, and I really feel like music has really been the steady, steady hand that has kept me motivated. That and my family, of course, I can't forget my family. They would, my wife would be a little pissed off if i forgot to mention her but music i'm always playing music listening to music thinking about music it keeps my brain occupied in a way that i don't know that i would be as i that it would my brain would be as active without music music is my life that that my little boy that's i mean it's what i do like when i want my for my walk today i listen to the new ozzy osbourne on the way Home, I listened to Be Here Now on, on Oasis. When I got home, my wife was playing the Muppets Christmas Carol on, on vinyl, which I was like, I'm, I'm out. Um, <coughs> music is so important to me, and I know we all share that in common, and it really does help me fight the kind of blues that comes with Parkinson's, where you're like, I can't do everything I want to do, and but I, you know what? If, if I can listen to music if I'm not feeling good, music is really, it, I, I think it gets the dopamine going. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I know Michael J. Fox is a big fan of The Who. I read his, I've read a couple of his books. Have you ever got a chance to meet him, by the way? I mean, I wouldn't ask you to name drop. No, I haven't. But I know that they've, I know that Roger and Pete have supported Michael. Yes. Um, a lot. Well, and back to the future, when he does his guitar solo, he does the Pete Townsend arm whirl. And right. I was, I was reading his book and he was like, 
after he found out he was sick, he had, he was on stage. I think it was, I don't think it was with them, but it was for a benefit. And he was like, he was like praying his medicine work so he could do his arm whirl. And I thought that how, how appropriate he was that because Pete Townsend, the guitar, I was listening to Quadrophini today. What an amazing album. It's so dense. Now Townsend plays pretty much a strat. Am I right? Uh, that record. Yeah. You can hear it. There's, you can tell when a strat and when he's, when he swings his arm and it's just the big open chords. It's amazing. That's my favorite of their works. Now, I got to be honest. I'm not, I have not, I don't know nearly as much about the who as I know about the Beatles. My, my, the record I have upstairs that I play on loop is who's next with bargain. And, uh, of course, don't get fooled again, which is one of the great rock anthems of any time. Bobo, Babo O'Reilly. I want to get more into the who, because that's the thing about getting older. There's always another thing to dig into. And I feel like the who is a huge treasure chest that I have just now cracked the lid on. How's it like working for those guys? Is it is it intimidating? Um, it was at the beginning. What was that like? What was it like stepping on stage for the first time, knowing that you were going to play a Who show? Nowhere near as nerve wracking as it was the first rehearsal. Uh, of by the time we got to the show, I was just glad that we all survived that far. <laughs> Um, because there was so much, we had about a week, maybe eight, nine days of, of be, between band rehearsal and orchestra rehearsal and production rehearsal. And I was totally convinced that the tour was going to be canceled. Yeah. Uh, what was, what was your first tour with them? Was, uh, John Entwistle still in the band? Well, when I worked with Roger in 1984, yeah, he was. But then Pete wasn't. Okay. Uh, but last year and the year before, Pete was. So there was uh, a steep learning curve sure. for Pete to learn to play with an orchestra. I guess maybe the better question, rather than how was it, how was it for you, I can't imagine being being in a band and having to play with an orchestra. That seemed like I was. I, it was like two two guitars and a bass and drums with me at an orchestra section. I'm lost, man. I'm lost. But I'm I'm not getting paid the big bucks. Well, it, it's not easy for them. Yeah, it's a it's a, a challenge. Sam, you got anything else you want to ask before we end the show? This has been I've, I've been having so much fun. Keith, you, you don't know yeah. how, you don't know how exciting this is for me, Keith. Oh, thank you. I think it's uh, I think it's awesome. I'm I'm actually you know as friends, it's it's exciting for for my friends to meet on this show. But I think that uh, you know, I just wanted to talk just a little bit more about Twelve Million, actually, and and kind of like, you know, we're you know, Keith, we're 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 talking about you know a couple ideas of what we're going to do with it at this point, but. I really do think um, that there's something that that we captured with that song, um, which I'm kind of excited to see where it, where it grows from here. Because I, it's just it, it feels like a privilege is is what I'm trying to say, and to stand on stage and see everybody gather around, especially at the end of the show. Like, I think that it 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 was one of those moments where it 
in a way kind of united people behind, you know, like crystallize what, what everybody's been feeling for a while when they're, when they don't know um, where the next paycheck's coming, you know, where they don't know um, when they're going to have a chance to, to, uh, to do something like this together again there was like a collective sigh of relief almost that happened that night. Did you pick up on that? Well, I think we certainly captured a moment in time. I think the sigh of relief is better tonight <laughs> than, yeah. it was, uh, than it was a couple of nights ago. It's not, it's not enough relief right, for, for what we need, but it's, it, it feels like a lot of, I mean, obviously not just our efforts, you and I, but right. um, the collective efforts of people like Level Up and mm -hmm. Michael Strickland with Band, Bandit Lights and Music Workers Association. Like, it, it feels like, I mean, we did get a $10 billion Save Our Stages budget through, through this bill. Um, we did get uh, paycheck protection loans again through this bill. That's great. Get, you know, continuing uh, unemployment benefits, even though they're short and not as much as they would, as we hope they would be. Sure. Bill. But I think it's better than where we stood on the Ryman. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't. I think it'd be ludicrous for us to say that we uh, can take any credit for that, but I think it, it's not ludicrous to say that we weren't a part of that. I totally agree, and that's well put. Like, the home stretch. Yeah, like um, what's what's important right now? Like what's important right now for our listeners on this show right now? What's important for them to to take away? From what's happening at the forefront right now, Keith? Like, what do you what what do you think the next step in this issue is? Like, what are you what are you looking at? Well, I mean, I think the next step in the issue is uh, the new administration in January, right? And um, there's going to have to be continuing relief because. You know, I'll say it again. We were the first to go and the last to come back, right? So that's you know that's going to continue, and I think the new administration will have to have some not responsibility really, but um, they will be holding be beholden to us mm -hmm. for that to happen. I, I I mean I think that people are really missing the arts and missing music and missing live performance. You know, I think there's a a, a Zoom fatigue. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, a a stream fatigue. Yeah. And you know, I think at some time, fairly soon, we'll be over that. I got to tell you, from my pers from my perspective, as somebody who doesn't is not able to get out much, the last concert I went and saw was Bad Company and Joe Walsh. It was amazing. I'm glad I went. Um, but for my health reasons, I can't get out much. I can't imagine people that are healthy. I love going I love going to concerts. I love it. I can't imagine 
how it must feel for healthy people to not be able to go out to shows. That was a, the highlight of some of my some of my weeks was going out and seeing these shows, and I really hope that that people think about what we're talking about, and the, the like you said, the new income the incoming administration will make it a priority to make these concert workers, like you said, first to go, last to come back. Because people say, what do we need? We don't need concerts. What well, actually you do. You do need music. You need live music. I mean, obviously with the, the with the virus, it's kind of complicated now, but people need to hear live music. People need to play live music. People need to support those things. It's very, very important to me. Well, I'd like to believe that we are, as Schindler would call it, Essential workers. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. If you're out there and you're like, you know, I want to find out more information, find out how I can support this. Or just go to the, I mean, really just go to the website, which is clusterclockmusic.com. And you yeah. can watch the interviews with Eddie Vedder and Roger Daltrey and Darlene Love and Rick Nielsen and John Anderson and Sam Wade and me <laughs> and, who, you know, whoever else. And, you know, if, if you... If, if you need to be convinced, right? Uh, aside from your own conscience, that uh, we have we have many uh, celebrities will who will, who will tell you how important it is not just uh, for arts and culture, but for mental health. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's we could talk about this for hours. All the different yes, layers. Right of of what's actually happening you know and, and keith i think we should probably have you come back uh at some point and 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 you know, continue to, to like you know kind of dissect this and and talk about how people can get active in this and and give what they can to make it happen you know yeah all right sam you got anything you want to add before we close the show i don't what about you keith no peace <laughs> for two tape decks i'm jay mac and I'm Sam Wade saying stay, stay cosmic. cosmic.